probably, or actually I think it actually is, the most miraculous thing that we have. It's the most miraculous thing that we have in our home, that we own. It's compiled over many years by many different authors, or many writers, but one author. It's survived so many uh, inquisitions and so many different things. We have it in over a hundred English translations in America, to the point we, we really take it for granted what it cost us. And I've, I've given many stories about how the Bible has survived and things like that, but it's God's word. It's the breath of God. It's how he speaks to us today. I heard someone say recently, so many people want to hear God speak, and they go to seminars, they spend hundreds of dollars. I want to hear how God speaks. I want to hear God speak to me. And he said, I can save you so much money. If you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. If you want to hear him speak out loud, read it out loud. Because it's, it's literally the word of God. And from it today, we are seeing a very, very subtly, we're seeing a battle of wills take place. Notice how many times, as we read this in a moment, notice how many times Jesus and the disciples use that word, will. You will, I will, the sheep will, I will not. And the implied, oh yes you will, that comes after it. I touched on this last week, but we do believe we have free will, but God's will is freer, even more free. And what he's decreed and what he knows to be true, in the scope of that, our will is much, much smaller. We cannot stand up in church and say, God is sovereign, and then, in the very next breath, try to implant the idea that we are still sovereign over the things we want to be. Because we understand this when trying to move within our will. We know our will should ultimately be submitted to the will of God, which he makes known to us through his word. If you will stand with me as we read the text, it's only about six verses this morning. Beginning in verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. You may be seated this morning. I titled this message in kind of in alignment with the last few, uh, Betrayed, as the theme for chapter 14 is that of betrayal. It's kind of the backdrop to everything that's taking place. Judas has left Jesus at this point, and he is on his way to uh, betray him. And the Last Supper which we've looked at the last couple of weeks, the Last Supper now comes to a close. So the title is, of course, The Last Supper Ends. Very clever, I know. Uh, but the, besides that, what we, what we really see happening in this text is a very subtle message for us. As Jesus is quoting the prophet Zechariah, as he is quoting God's word to the disciples, Yet the disciples are standing in defiance of it. And they're saying, no, no, that's not going to happen. Even though God has already decreed it. 
So the one thing, if you're taking notes this morning, the one thing I hope you take away is that we must trust in God's word, not ourselves. Jesus will appeal to scripture in our text, the word of God, spoken by God, literally to his disciples. As Jesus is speaking this, we recognize Jesus is God and he is speaking his own word to them. And like the disciples, we often would rather not trust scripture when we ought to, which is really unfortunate. And it displays our own human arrogance above all things else. Scripture is a sword that pierces our heart, Paul writes in Ephesians. It's a mirror that reveals our sin to us, James tells us. It's a seed that reproduces, says Peter. It's a milk that nourishes, he says again. And it's a lamp that shines, says the psalmist. It's a fire that consumes and a hammer that shatters, Jeremiah reminds us. And even though it is all those things, it's a sword, a mirror, a seed, a milk, a lamp, a fire, a hammer, even though it's all those things, because it is all those things, we often will make it our last source of guidance. In our text today, Jesus uses Scripture to tell the disciples, the eleven, Judas is gone, like I said, what God knows will happen. And though they deny it, he has decreed this is the outcome of tonight's events. This is what's going to transpire. While they are free to react however they wish, God is more free than they are. And he's already seen and known exactly what will occur. This should cause us to look within ourselves. To look at ourselves. Ask the Holy Spirit to search us again and again. We often will trust our gut. We will trust our own understanding rather than lean on his word or trust in him. This should not be the case for the Christian we must trust in God's word and not ourselves. This is a narrative. I've broken the narrative up into three small parts. And the first is, I've titled a hymn and a verse. If you read back in verse 26, it says, And when they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Seems like we have spent a lot of time over the past few months just on this week of Jesus' life alone. And that makes a lot of sense. We're building up to the betrayal and the crucifixion and all of that. If you took all four of the Gospels and added up all the numbers of chapters within each book, there are 89 chapters. And if you go from Jesus' entire life, from birth until the time he starts his ministry at age 30, there's only four chapters about all of that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, between all of them, only four chapters. And yet this last week of Jesus' life, what we call the Passion Week, it fills 29 chapters between all four of them. And 13 are dedicated solely to the Friday when he is crucified. So it's natural that we're going to spend quite a lot of time on this week. The biblical writers certainly do. And as we begin, we understand more and more what's been happening throughout this whole process we know there's more that, than Mark even lets us know. John, in his gospel, he sheds some insight, and we'll get to that in a moment. But I want you, if you will, to picture the scene as they are leaving this evening, as they are wrapping up the Passover meal. Likely they've left the dishes to be washed a day later, or, or they've cleaned up a little bit, I don't know. But they are now singing a hymn, and they're making their way outside the city. The city's likely gone quiet. It's now dark. 
And from the outside, gazing into Jerusalem that night, you might see many candles in the windows as families were feasting together, as they were still joining together. The temple gates would have stood open, ready to welcome any late-coming pilgrims to the city. You might even hear in the soft distance the patter of Judas's feet as he runs to the high priest down one alleyway and the next, sprinting but pausing just to make sure that no one is following him or watching. He wants to make sure in his paranoia that he's not been caught just yet. And there in that upper room, somewhere in the city, 12 men stand together for the last time and they begin to sing. The hymn they sang that night was part of what's called the traditional Hallel. It begins in Psalm 113. To begin the feast, they would have sang Psalm 113 and 114. And now at the end, they would sing 115, 16, 17, and they would conclude with Psalm 118. Some suggest that it's likely an extra hymn, maybe Psalm 136, which emphasizes God's loving kindness until the end of time. But the traditional songs they would have sang, I think Jesus would have wanted to emphasize to his disciples that night, especially when they got to the end, Psalm 118, which has passages in it like this, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. And soon this will be Christ himself. Later in Psalm 118, it says, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. In other words, this story of Jesus, this whole thing that's going to happen to him this night will not end in death. Death is just one of the steps that they'll take. And then one that Peter will quote on the day of Pentecost, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is a powerful reminder that this is the Lord's promise. Long before they cooked dinner for that night, this would be the song that they would sing for traditions for, for years and years prior. This would be the promise of the coming Messiah, the ultimate Passover lamb. And it's going to point to the Savior's death on the cross. As I mentioned briefly earlier, John's gospel gives us a little more insight into what transpired after dinner. Jesus had talked to his disciples about how he is the true vine. They are the branches. They can do nothing apart from him. He warned them though, the, that the world will hate them, that the world will persecute them. He taught them about the role of the Holy Spirit within the church, within their individual lives. And he prayed his high priestly prayer before leaving for the Mount of Olives. John 18 reads, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples to the other side of the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, into which he entered with his disciples. Of course, this was the other side of the valley where the Mount of Olives stood. Possibly he's heading back to the same place where he had given his famous Olivet Discourse in the previous chapter. But it's interesting to note a couple of things about this very short, we've established throughout this last few weeks, that it's about a 20-minute journey from, from Jerusalem to this spot. That they're traveling in the spring. It's kind of fascinating because there's a brook that runs through the base of the Kidron Valley. And if it's been raining, then, of course, there's more water in that brook. It's a little bit higher. But more than that, 
There have been sacrifices going on in the temple all day, and the blood of the lamb has flown into this brook. And now that ultimate Passover lamb crosses a small flowing river that flows with the blood of the Passover lamb. Second, it's interesting to note this is the pretty much the virtually the same route that David walked the night he was betrayed by his son Absalom. If you go back in 2 Samuel and read that, 2 Samuel uh, 16, 17. It's interesting to note that James Bajon, he's a French scholar, and he, he points out how Judas hangs himself later in this story and how Absalom is left hanging in a tree. The only other hanging in the Old Testament that's mentioned is one of Absalom's advisors, but the text literally reads like this. Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, so he saddled his donkey, arose, and went to his home, to his city, set his house in order, and strangled himself. Thus he died and was buried in the grave of his father. Absalom is the only person in the Old Testament who is left hanging to death in a tree, much like Judas in the New Testament. So Bejon concludes, he says, if Jesus is the Davidic Messiah, Judas is the Absalomic betrayer. And so that rests as the background for what's taking place within our text this morning. Understand the rightful king is once again going to be betrayed in Jerusalem. And the blood of the lamb flows freely through the Kidron Valley. But on the way to the Mount of Olives, on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus begins to have a conversation with the disciples. And he begins by quoting a verse. He's actually quoting Zechariah. Verse 27 reads, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus says this to the 11 men who are left with him as closest disciples. And this actually begins what we've come to call in Mark one of the story sandwiches, but we're going to take a few weeks to get through it because this is a pretty big sandwich and uh, we'll, we'll get through it slowly. But he begins to inform them of the future. He says, you will all fall away. Now, as usual, this is a very interesting word choice by Jesus. He could have very easily said, you're all going to scatter. You're all going to run in different directions. You're all going to be overcome by fear, and you're going to abandon me. It's not what he says. He says, you'll fall away. In the Greek, it's only one word, and it comes from the word scandalizo. It's where we get the English word scandal or scandalize. It literally means they will be caused to sin or stumble or fall. In other words, you're all going to abandon me. You're going to abandon Jesus. And to abandon Jesus is literally to abandon God himself. They had recognized, prior to this event, they had recognized him to be the Son of God, to be the Messiah. If you recall, back in Mark chapter 8, Peter proudly declares, you are the Christ, and rightfully so. And here Christ tells him, but you're all going to leave. You're all going to abandon me. The next few words are very vital. Beginning with the word for, in the Greek it's the word hotai. It literally means because. You're going to leave me because. Because why? Because it is written. It is written. It's been declared. It's been promised to us. 
You will because God has seen it. God has declared it. God has shown it and revealed it. And while you don't think that you will, God, through the scope of time and eternity, looked down and called it around 500 years ago. The actual words of Zechariah read, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man. My associate, declares Yahweh of hosts, strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. While you are free to make your choice, God is more free than you and I together, and, and he already knows the decisions that you'll make. He knows Peter. He knows James. He knows Thomas, Thaddeus, Andrew, the rest of them. He knows they're going to run. God is going to strike down the shepherd, the good shepherd. And while the word Jesus uses simply means for strike, it literally just means to be hit or struck down, we understand it to mean a death blow. He's going to be struck down to death. But in quoting Zechariah, what Jesus is doing, the subtle difference he makes between the way Zechariah words it in the Old Testament and the way Jesus words it here in Mark, it's saying that he will be hit. He will be struck down. He is the shepherd. He is the associate. That it is, in fact, God speaking. And Jesus' words suggest he knew himself to be the suffering servant of God, the suffering servant of Yahweh, whom Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah 53. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Understand when the servant, when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will have to scatter because that is what God has decreed, what God has said will happen. In their shame, they will run. They will seek shelter. They will abandon Jesus. They will abandon their shepherd. The disciples don't want to hear this, though. Who does? If your best friend told you tomorrow, you're not going to be my best friend. You're not going to want to hear that, right? If someone said to you, hey, you know what? You're going to fail at everything you thought you were going to succeed at. You're not going to want to hear that. But that's almost exactly what Jesus is telling them in this moment. And he's saying it not because Jesus wants that to happen necessarily, but because God has already decreed it to happen. Because it's to fulfill his word. And again, I say we must trust in the word of God not what we may believe about ourselves. And the next thing we see in the narrative is a promise and a lie. We read in verse 28, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Notice that he makes this promise. He says, after I am raised up, the LSB simply says, after I've been raised. But it's one word in the Greek, egerthani. Egerthani literally means resurrected, awakened, stood up and restored to one's feet. If there is an after for him to be raised, then we have to understand there is a before where he is going to be struck down. If the shepherd is struck, and that strike causes him to be in need of a resurrection, one might think that the disciples would start to get the point. He's told them many times that he's going to suffer. He's told them many times he's going to die. And here, once again, he's telling them that again. But they don't seem to understand. You understand, again, to the Jewish mindset, to the Jewish man or woman, the idea that the Messiah could be killed, the idea that he would be tortured, well, that was just preposterous. They did not understand the scriptures to mean this. And, 
In hindsight, it's very clear. Again, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, all speak to these things, as do many other Old Testament scriptures. But many times they were glossed over. Even, in fact, to this day, the Jewish uh, synagogues and, and rabbis around the world try to avoid Isaiah 53. They don't like to talk about that. But Jesus still makes another promise. He says he'll get to Galilee before they do, following the week's festivities. Keep in mind, the crucifixion, the resurrection, it all takes place during this festival of unleavened bread. They've planned to stay in Jerusalem. They've planned to stay in Bethany, that area, for about a week at least. Jesus' arrest and his death, we've already booked the hotel room. I guess we might as well stay, might have been their mentality. Jesus is going to suffer, and yet they're going to have nowhere else to go in the immediate time. And still, Jesus tells them, I'll be back home in Galilee before you guys make it back. Hmm. The angel will remind them of this in Mark chapter 16. It's going to, he's going to tell Mary, go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Matthew points this out as well. Jesus told them to meet them in Galilee in, in, in Matthew 28. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. It won't be the only time and the only place they can find Jesus post-resurrection. He's going to meet up with them several times before his ascension. And even before meeting them in Galilee. But the point is, that is where they will all ultimately come together. He promises them, if nothing else, they will see him there when the time is right. This is, in a sense, this is actually the dual nature of Christ on display for us to see. That Jesus is both God and man. His body, his physical nature, will be resurrected, will be raised up. And yet in his divine nature... His divine knowledge, he's exposing that he knows what will happen. Jesus insists his human nature will be intact. Notice he doesn't say, once I'm raised up, I'm going to be everywhere all at once. Even though being God would be within his right to be omniscient, omnipresent in that way. He says, no, I'll meet you in Galilee. It's interesting to note in the year 451, there was a council of Chalcedon, which is one of the most important councils in all of church history, as the church leaders would meet together and they would discuss this crazy idea of how both God and man could exist within one being. How is that possible? Now, they were also addressing this heresy called monophysite, the monophysite heresy, basically saying Christ only had one nature. That Christ was only one thing at a time, as if before he could become God in a moment, he had to switch off being a human and then back to the other, or, or he was just always truly man or was always truly God. He could not be one or the other. But the council proclaimed that, the, that both the nature of God and the human nature of man were unique to Christ. We call it today the hypostatic union, if you like big theological words. The hypostatic union. He did not switch them off. He did not cease being God, nor did he ever cease being man. He existed as both at the same time. Both natures were present in him at all times. And the disciples, I mean, if we're still struggling with it by 451, can't really blame the disciples for struggling with this in the year 30, right? 
So they're struggling with this idea too. They believed him to be the son of God. Surely he could not be killed. And so their mouthpiece, Peter, he can't help himself. Peter said to him, this is verse 29, even though they all fall away, I will not. Do you hear the arrogance in Peter's voice in that moment? Even though all these other guys do it, Jesus, I'm not going to. I'm the grade A student. I'm the number one. I'm not going to fail you. I'm not going to mess up. Peter doesn't just say this, by the way. The Greek word is ephi. It means he declares it, like Michael Scott declaring bankruptcy. He didn't just say it. He declared it. Therefore, it must mean more somehow. He basically says, even if all these other guys fall away, if they abandon you, if they stumble, Jesus, I will still be there beside you. Peter is quick to throw his ten friends under the bus. They may sin, not me. We all think like that at times, don't we? We all have that same arrogance about ourselves and our own relationship with Christ. We all think certain sins may happen to others, not me. Others may be tempted to sin like that, not me. Others may fall to that addiction, not me. Others may cheat, others may steal, others may have that problem, but not me. No way. I love Jesus far too much. The truth is, none of us are above temptation. None of us are above sin. 1 John tells us that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The sin we neglect is so often the sin of pride. The sin that says, if I'm made to feel ashamed for who I am or for what I am, I'll simply shed my skin and be something or someone else. And that's exactly what Peter does. It's what he ultimately will do. It's what we do when we deny Christ, when we choose sin. The instant being a follower or being a believer becomes too difficult or too hard for us. Yet in spite of this, in spite of knowing that Peter's standing there, bold as bronze, staring him in the face, looking him in the eye, telling him there is no way that's going to happen, Jesus, over my dead body, there's no way he'd turn. Jesus knows the truth. Because Jesus knows Peter. Jesus will die for Peter's sin. As bold and as brazen as it may be in this moment, Jesus will die for the obvious sins as well as all the secret sins of Peter that the Gospels never reveal to us. And Jesus will die for your bold and brazen sins as well, the sins you've committed without remorse, the same as he dies for all your secret sins that you hope nobody ever finds out about. That is the dual nature of Christ on display. That is the God-man, Jesus being God. He knows us. He loves us. Being man, he will die as the atonement for our grossest misconduct, for our sin. You don't have to believe me about that. You can believe God's word. And if you don't trust me, trust him. And finally, we come to the third portion of this narrative, when the rooster will crow, beginning in verse 30. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. I almost titled this part, the rooster and the chicken, but didn't seem to be perfect. Jesus basically says to Peter, no, 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 no. That's a lie. The truth is, you're not going to deny me once. You're going to deny me three times. You're going to absolutely disown me. 
That's what that really amounts to. Peter believes himself to be the exception to the rule. And while he is, not in the way he thinks. You see, Peter's failure will come to be greater than that of all the other disciples. Only Judas's fate will actually be worse. Jesus tells him this very night, in other words, Peter, as soon as the sun goes down, your clock starts ticking, bud. Do you think you're more righteous than the others? You are in for a shock. In fact, the rooster crows twice. Now, in first century Palestine, I don't know if any of you have roosters at home, but sometimes those things will crow all night long, right? I grew up, we had chickens, we had roosters, and I hated that thing. Dad would not let me go take a baseball bat to it no matter how many times I asked, because all night he would crow. But this is an expression, you understand, that, that meant the third watch of the night. It was the Roman third watch. Usually it would take place between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. Mark is the only one who suggests the rooster crows twice. But the fact is, what Jesus is saying is, before this night is over, Peter, you will deny me. You'll fall, and you're going to fall harder than anyone else around you. The word deny that Jesus uses simply means, it doesn't mean to simply act as though he doesn't know Jesus. It's the word apernisi. It means he's going to disown him. He's going to refuse to recognize Jesus. He's going to completely disregard, disassociate himself from him. Basically what Jesus is saying is, Peter, before the rooster's done... You're saying to me that I'm your all in all, but I will be nothing to you. You'll swear that I am everything in this moment, but not too far from now. You'll act as if I was dirt under your feet. This is the same Peter who just a couple of hours ago was saying to Jesus, don't just wash my feet. Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head as well, as Jesus would wash the disciples' feet. And even as Jesus washed the skin of Peter, he knew this conversation was coming. Peter will deny Jesus three times. In this culture, many times to get someone to receive something, you don't just receive it on the first attempt. You offer it three times. We see it in some of Jesus' parables. We see it with the Syrophoenician woman coming to Jesus and, and asking for healing for her daughter. She has to ask him three times before he will act. It's, it's kind of a way to confirm there's no misunderstanding. There's no mistake about this. You're, you want what I have. So to deny Jesus three times was the exact opposite. It's the complete and utter denial of him. There's no misunderstanding. There's no mistake. Peter wants it crystal clear at that point that he wants nothing to do with Jesus. To be apprehended, to be arrested for being a disciple of Jesus, Peter no doubt believes there's a bullseye on his back now and he could be punished, he could be killed. As the old saying goes from the incredible movie called Star Wars. Nobody laughed, but okay. <laughs> Who's the bigger fool, the fool or the fool who follows him? Peter doesn't want to be the bigger fool. Peter doesn't want to be the guy who followed Jesus and has to suffer a greater punishment. So he's distancing himself. He's going to disown Jesus. He wants to make sure there's no misunderstanding. He has nothing to, I don't even know who that guy is, he'll say at one point. Jesus knows this because it is written. It will happen. And yet Peter still, at the very end of our passage this morning, still trusts within himself. 
He said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Despite what Jesus has said, Peter is unconvinced. Do you realize what's happened in this moment? Do you realize what's taking place in this conversation? Either Peter is calling Jesus a liar to his face, or he's doubting his divinity. He's doubting him already. Notice that he doesn't say, Lord, please don't test me in this way. He doesn't suggest that maybe Jesus is is misunderstanding the the context and and, and that there's truly something wrong. There's a miscalculation somewhere. No. He suggests Jesus is completely wrong. If I must die, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Since getting out of his fishing boat three years earlier, Peter has been a rebel of sorts. He's been made to feel like an outcast. But as long as Jesus lived, surely there was hope that he would live too. When the threat of death, though, the threat of actual punishment comes, Peter will be on the outside looking in, literally. Peter was standing at the door outside, so the other disciple who was known to the high priest, we understand that's John, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and they brought Peter in. When the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, are you not also this man's disciple? He said, I am not. That's one. That's the first time. As long as the outlook seems safe, as long as things were easy, just like Peter, we will declare our allegiance to Jesus Christ. All the disciples do this, yet all of them will run. They will all abandon him. Only John will be bold enough and have the courage enough to stand at the foot of the cross. When we have not, when we do not consider the cost of embarrassment, the cost of humiliation, the cost of shame, we stand before Jesus saying the same thing. Even if everybody else were to deny you, even if everybody else were to run, I'll still serve you, Lord. Commentator Kim Tam says, Vows made with ease are often recanted in terror. Where will we be when it's hard to serve Jesus? Where will we find ourselves when it's a call to holiness, when it's a call to abandon the old life, or even our comfortable lives now? I mentioned this earlier this summer. I think I would have a hard time serving Jesus if it meant I didn't have air conditioning. I think some of you can relate to that. This is a challenge to the disciple, not only to Peter, but to all of them. And not only is Peter lying to Jesus, he's deceiving himself because he refuses to submit to the word of God. He refuses to understand what Christ is telling him, to hear what is going to happen with humility and submit to it. Pride, again, runs through this disciple. I've talked about this quite a bit the last few weeks, about asking the Holy Spirit to search our hearts as individuals, asking him, search my heart, O Lord. Often, Because if you don't push you, if you don't ask God to move you, to motivate you, nobody else ever will. Your church family cannot always do it for you. Your pastor cannot do it for you. You know the sin within your life, and you know in your own life, it's only if you repent that change is going to come. I like how Coach Bill Parcells once said, You may fool the whole world down the pathway of life and get pats on the back as you pass, but your final reward will be heartaches and tears if you cheated the man in the glass. So many Christians cheat themselves. 
They cheat themselves out of joy, out of peace, out of so much more because they trust in the world and they don't trust in the word. They trust in themselves more than they trust in the word of God. And church, we have to ask ourselves, do we, faith assembly of God, do we trust in the word or do we trust in ourselves? Do we trust in a past experience or do we trust in what God is telling us? Our society says, bet on yourself, trust in yourself, believe in yourself. Jesus said, if you knew yourself, you'd hate you. If you knew your sinful self, that you're a wretch, you'd want to trust in me. When we trust in him, I'm almost done, buddy, I promise. When we trust in him, when we are born again in him, the old self, the untrustworthy self begins to fade when he takes over as king and as Lord of our lives. We must trust in him, even if what he says is difficult, even if it's hard to accept. I talk about trusting in God's word, and, and yet tomorrow morning, I promise you this, you will not open up your Bible and find out what shoes the God wa- that God wants you to wear. If you open up to the book of Timothy, you're not going to find which bill to pay first come Tuesday. If you look in the book of Revelation, this fantastic book of prophecy, you're not going to know what the weather is going to be like on Wednesday, if that's your resource. But you will find within Scripture the very principles to build and guide your life. You'll find inside a truth worth knowing that all people, the same as the disciples, the same as everyone sitting here today, we are all capable of evil. We're all capable of wicked things. Sin, that which separates us from God, is in our nature. It has been since the very beginning of time, since the first man and first woman chose to rebel against the voice of God in the, dar- in the garden. Sin, that which separates us from God, is in our very nature and has been for so long. But the truth we find within Scripture is that in spite of our sin, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, humbled himself, not forsaking being God, but took on the form of a human being as a baby. He grew to be a man, to be an atoning sacrifice. The word the Bible writers use is propitiation for our sins. So that we may still sin, we may still fall. We may backslide. We are no longer, even in spite of that, we are no longer enslaved by our sins. We're no longer enslaved by our addictions or by our own hearts. We trust his words, not ourselves. Jeremiah tells us our hearts are deceitful. That's why we shouldn't trust them. He says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You see, God knows it. In fact, the very next verse says God is the only one who tests the mind and searches the heart. So he knows better than anybody the, the, the muck that lies within our lives. And in spite of that, in spite of knowing that, he loves you enough to offer you salvation, to offer his son as, a, as an atoning sacrifice. Do you believe that this morning? Do you receive that this morning? I'm going to ask the worship team to come back, and we're going to move towards a time for refreshments downstairs, and, and yeah, we're going to have some fellowship and some fun. And we're all looking forward to passing the baby around, right? No? Okay. I don't think that, as wound up as he is, I don't know if that'd be a good idea or not. But maybe you're here today, and you're feeling that tug on your heart, that there is something to this, that you do need that salvation. That you do need to know the love of Christ 
that you've pushed it away, that you've tried to run from it, and yet there's this tugging. It's not my preaching that is doing that. It's, that's the Holy Spirit. Because God still saves. But our humility is key in that salvation. So I would ask you, do you receive what you need most today? God still takes a heart of stone and makes it new. We're going to move into a time we're going to worship, we're going to sing, or there will be a dismissal prayer. And I would just say this, if you're here and you don't know Christ, if you're here and you've been running for a long time, if you don't know him as the God who saves, find a place to pray. Grab the hand of one of our greeters, grab an usher, Come find me, find me at the front, find me downstairs, whatever the case may be. If you'd like someone to pray with you, I'm more than happy to. Or maybe you just want to pray by yourself. God, I'm a sinner. Save me from the consequences of my sin. I trust in you, I trust in your word. And that's as simple as it has to be if you truly believe it. Because if you believe it, the Bible tells us he'll change your life. In fact, I remember not that long ago when Joe was here and I told him, we sat in the chairs together, and I said, if you believe, if you really do mean that prayer, the Holy Spirit's going to wreck your life in the most beautiful way possible. And he has, right? Praise God. So if that's you this morning, I would challenge you with that, and we're going to go ahead and sing and uh, have a prayer of dismissal as well.